All right. Well, thank you for that lovely lunch. And uh, thank you to the assembly again, to the elders, deacons, and uh, the saints for my invitation here. We are going to finish what we discussed or began this morning and hopefully be able to touch on a few more practical matters at the end of this hour. Um, The only thing that limits us is really when I have to go to the airport, so we're good. Um, Now, where we were this morning is we talked about communication, and that was a practical discussion. It was really the prelude to dealing with conflict and its uh, resolution and, and elements like brokenness that need to be part of the resolution process. And so we talked a little bit about communication and how we communicate and what we say and when we say it and what's the purpose and how it's supposed to work out. But we all recognize, maybe some more than others, that communication is kind of important because when conflict happens, we really got to like talk it through. And so conflict, we took a long time and we looked at where does conflict come from? And we looked at things like pride and self-centeredness and wrath or anger. We looked at things like hatred and being contrary just uh, or scoffer, all those terms uh, that the scripture in the Proverbs clearly defines as strife producing. And it's just not strife producing at the workplace. If you think you can go to the workplace and be that kind of guy there and and come home, it'll show up in the home. You cannot turn it off. The flesh is not that way. You kill the flesh. You mortify the deeds of the flesh. You don't mess around with it, right? And so we talked a little bit about where those conflicts come from. And then we talked about the necessity. I didn't treat that subject very well, but the necessity to deal with the conflict. Then the appropriate, it's supposed to be resolved. And the fundamental attitude to resolution is, first of all, self-examination coming before the throne of grace and saying, Lord, don't examine my partner, examine me, and see if there be any wicked way in me. That's where it begins. Make no mistake, too many couples will sabotage their path to recovery because they first wanted to name the other person's sin. That's unacceptable. It's undoable. It must be undone. Now what we're going to talk about is the aspect of forgiveness, as you can see before me or behind me. And, and the idea of forgiveness is really germane, really a fundamental to restoration, right? It's, it's pretty clear there's conflict. We need to get it solved. We start to talk about it. Our hearts are right. But in the end, no matter which person has responsibility for what deeds or, or attitudes, somewhere along the line, you're going to realize the following things. You can't pay the debt. My partner can't pay the debt for what they've done, and I can't pay the debt for what I've done. And the only term that will ever satisfy that impasse is forgiveness. I want to take some minutes to describe forgiveness to you. Now, the last time I was here, which was several years ago, I gave a message that was just on forgiveness. And you might remember it because I kept you for an hour and a half. Right? I've noticed it's been like 20 years since they had me come back. So. I'm, I'm obviously exaggerating. It's been 19. But anyway, the point, <laughs> can't take them out in public, can you? Now, the point is, is that these concepts are very important in a marital situation. And before we get started in this, I want you to know the following. Some people will say, Steve, it says... 
If he repents, then you shall forgive him. That's a quote out of Luke. I believe it's chapter 17. And so therefore, if my spouse doesn't repent, I know forgive. Okay, let's just back up the tape. I want to ask you something. Do you think that God has made everything possible for you to receive forgiveness prior to you asking for forgiveness? Does God have to go sacrifice his son again? Does God have to see him raised from the dead again? No, 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 no. He has done everything so that your sin, the blood has been shed, so that forgiveness can be granted. What happens here is God stands ready and willing to forgive, to send your sins away, and the equation is only complete when you come and say, I've sinned, please forgive me. It's not like God has to go in the kitchen again and cook up a fresh pot of forgiveness. It's already ready. That's what we do. Bill McDonald says this in his commentary. It's very clear. He says, we don't, we don't, uh, we, 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 we don't go through the... Pro- we, we, we in our hearts establish the forgiveness. And when it's time to have it received and allow the reconciliation process to occur, it can be granted without hesitation. By the way, that's what keeps you from bitter, from being bitter. Because sometimes a spouse or a friend or whoever in the relationship will never, will never come back. Will never say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. How do you survive that? You stand before God and you, as if God was himself asking you to forgive, you forgive as unto the Lord. And you let your heart rest in him. This is what Jesus did. He committed himself to him who judges righteously. And therefore he did not retaliate. And therefore he did not to return evil for evil or insult for insult. That's the temptation. So we take that same posture of Christ. If you're in that situation, I want to be very sensitive because they're extremely painful. Maybe a spouse ran off and maybe they were cruel and hateful and stole everything and left you with nothing. I understand that. But we still have to deal with the reality of that moment. And I want you to know that it's not the first time that will happen. It's not the last time it will happen. But it happens before God every single day. Where There are many people where, where the human race has stolen everything away and that God owned it all and just taken it away and done their own thing and, and will never come to God and repent. And God still stands there having paid the price. Right? You're following that pattern. You know what it said in Peter? Count it a blessing that you're counted worthy to suffer the things of Christ. It's tough, no doubt about it. Remember this last one. Men or women mean things for evil. God means it for good. That is one of the last verses of the last paragraph of the book of Genesis chapter 50. And what that is telling you is that that is the thematic element of the entire Word of God. Sin, Satan's sin and its corruption has always meant to twist, steal, destroy, and mean things for evil. But God, in His grand, gigantic heart, benevolence and power, deposits Himself in such a way that evil never wins the day. Where sin abounds... Grace does much more about. And if you're in one of those situations which is not, doesn't seem in the foreseeable future to be fair, uh, reconcilable, 
I would remind you that, that that is exactly what God is in the business of doing. When evil is present, can't take it away, he just makes it for good. That verse actually shows up again in the book of Romans, where our brother was reading this morning. And he works all things together for good. All things, even my spouse's ugliness, yes. Even my selfishness, yes. Even my failure, yes. Even the world who wants to be cruel to you, yes. All right, so forgiveness. Let's talk about forgiveness. Turn in your Bibles, please, to uh, Colossians chapter 1. And, and I'll try to be brief, uh, lest you say, oh, I heard that before, but I'd like to, like to develop this concept a little bit. Uh, uh, Colossians chapter 1, and, and just for the sake of discussion, verse 13. He has delivered us from the power of darkness. Don't you love that? It's so, you know, it so bespeaks of this, this, di- this duel of, of evil, right? And here we are, and we're under the sway, the manipulation of darkness. It sounds like Narnia, right? Have you seen that, Narnia? Yeah, I'm, I, I don't really know about it. Anyway, <laughs> deliver us from the power of darkness and convey us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Immediately, the new regime is known by one word, love. Such a contrast to the power of darkness, the dynamos of darkness. And then this is what he says next. In Him we have redemption. What does that mean? Buying back. God is buying us back. Satan stole the loyalties of man, the heart of man, the affection of man. God buys them back off the marketplace of the judicial system of the universe. And then what does he do? Through his blood, forgiveness of sins. The word forgiveness here is the word aphiemi. It will be on the test. You want to write it down. Aphiemi is um, the most common word used for forgiveness in the New Testament. And its greatest concentration of usage is actually in the Gospels. So when we, and I believe a brother read this this morning, out of Luke chapter 7, talking about the incident with the unnamed woman and Simon, the Pharisee's house. And I'm sorry, I don't remember which brother read that, but I was very much, I was closing my eyes listening, I was not sleeping. And, And I remember him reading the little miniature parable, and when two debtors, one owed 500 and 150, and they both could not pay, he freely forgave. Okay, that word forgave, that's F-E-M-I. And when he says to the woman in that Simon, Simon the Pharisee's house, he says, and her sin, I just love that, I just melt. I could, that's my favorite story next to the other favorite story. Okay, <laughs> he goes, he, he, says, he says to Simon, so he's talking to this, car- this joker guy, but he doesn't look at him. Says he looks at the woman. Sorry, got to go to the woman. Looks at the woman, and he goes, "And her sins, which are many." Can you hear the Son of God say that? I know everything. I'm sorry. I know everything. I know everything she did. I know everything she hasn't done. I know it all. I know stuff you don't know, Simon. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Can you just? Can you just hear her just sob? Because what that word is. Her sins are F-E-M-I. I've sent them away. She thought she could never get rid of her sins. Now, what does this particularly mean? What, 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 what sort of ideas can be associated? Now, I, I should say here, let's just back up. There's another word that's the second most common word. 
and it means undeserved favor. It's actually more common in the epistles, and you can see in chapter 3, that's the word there, in Ephesians chapter 4, that's the word there. The concept is he sends your sins away, how? When you don't deserve them to be sent away. It's a favor. Okay, that's the concept. Now, when we talk about marriage, this happens all the time. There are things that happen, and you're going to need to send the sins away, the crimes, the injuries, the, the insults that you receive. You're going to have to send them away and separate them from, one per, from the person, your spouse, and the sins you, you put over there. They're no longer associated. They're no longer connected. And you're going to do it not because your spouse deserved it, but because it's a gracious act on your part. That's how God has done you. That's living salvation in real time. It's a concept of salvation, right? And we say, well, how can we be a witness in my marriage? Live the concepts of salvation between each other and you will herald the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Now, uh, this idea of releasing, of, of sending it away, it, it, it's uh, in several places, but it, it comes to you first, I think, in the phrase, um, remember when the Lord Jesus was with uh, uh, Peter's mother-in-law? They had just come out of the Capernaum synagogue and, and they went right across, it appears to be right across the street into Peter's home. Now, today in Capernaum, it's still there, and they have excavated down, for those of you who love Israel and want to go on the tour, anyway, they have excavated down to the time of Christ, and you can tell because there's a certain volcanic rock called the basalt rock that was used in construction of Christ's day, and so they got down to that level of earth, if I may, and and, uh, anything in Israel that has any sort of biblical significance, somebody somewhere has built a a shrine over it, and, and they somehow, somebody said, well, this is Peter's house, and so there's this... There's this like church thing that then you go up some stairs and you stand on above what they call Peter's house and you look down through Pexigas and it's literally dirt and stone and you go, wow, Peter's house. And you, who knows? Who knows? But it's kind of fun. You should do it. Anyway, we do that and we look Peter's house. Now, in that house, apparently so, uh, mom-in-law got sick. And so they, they went in and, and the Lord Jesus heard that mom-in-law was ill And so he goes over to her and he says this, and I've always wanted to do this to my patients. Fever be gone. (laughs) Said that. Now, there's another place in Israel today. It's just a little bit north of Capernaum, and it's sort of a, a, it it looks like a little outpost, like a fort, and it's a museum. And in that museum, they have um, various things of the time of Christ. And one of the things they they had was a little trinket that you wore around your neck. And it had a little configuration to it and was to wart off fever. So in the context of the culture, the Lord Jesus comes in, the young the lady, the mom in law has a fever. He doesn't take out, well, let me get this and you know, it's not one of those deals. He just uses the strength of his voice, which is really incredible, it holds all things together by the word of his power, and he says, Fever be gone. You know? Now if I'm one of the, those disciples like Peter, I'm 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 going It's gone, right? Can you, where's James? Can you imagine your, your next patient tomorrow? 103, they're septic, right? You say, hey, let me try something new here. How you feeling? You good? Okay, watch this. Fever be gone. Here's the patient. Is there any other doctor to see me today? 
Because this guy's not right. Right? Now, what's interesting here, I just, isn't that, you, you use that. You say, hey, I will t- I would t- there's a man who tells fever to go, it went, but I can't do that. So you're going to give you Tylenol. Anyway, so here's the deal. It's the fever then, it says in the text, left her. That word left is not the left hand. It's aphemi. Separated. The two got separated. That's the concept. Now, in the Bible, there's so many concepts like this, and I'll try to explain them briefly. In Psalm 103, it says this, As far as the east is from the west, so far have I separated you from your sins. What does he mean by that? In a linear equation, as long as you go east, you'll never hit west. And as long as you go west, you'll never hit east. Correct? It's, just, it's like two ends of the number line, opposite directions. That's what he's saying. Your sin and the sinner are separated eternally and, and at the greatest distance possible. That's how God forgives. Number two, this little thing right here, okay? The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. There are two illustrations in the Bible that illustrate this great. Yom Kippur is one of them. Now, Yom Kippur was a, the, a very, very special day. And so once a year, we read this in, in Hebrews today, once a year you would go into the Holy of Holies. That's the first two-thirds of the tabernacle. Table, showbread, incense, the menorah, those furnitures, furniture pieces. You come over, and then here's the curtain. Now, the temple reflected the same thing, except it was much bigger, and the veil went up to the ceiling, right? And so you'd stop right there, and then what you would do, the priest would, would to, in order to prepare, he would put on clothes that were very non-ornate. They would be uh, regular linens. You wouldn't recognize them. Normally, you had the headdress and the stones, and here is very plain. In other words, you can't offer anything of yourself before God, right? And then you take the bull. He would take a bull, and he would sacrifice the bull on the altar, brazen altar. He would then go into the holy of whole, or excuse me, the holy place, and then he'd also take incense, right? And it would be like the prayers, and it'd have the coals from the brazen altar and the blood of the bull. Then you'd go past the veil once a year, and in the, in the holy of holies is the Ark of the Covenant with the cherubim. All right, so for you younger people, you know, you've seen the little Ark of the Covenant that Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay, look something like that. Okay, the cherubim like that, kind of cool, looking at each other. Now, it's beautiful, 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 beautiful picture. And I think it was uh, Jamal who said this this morning, that the mercy seat covered the box, and it covered the law. Three things in the box. The uh, second copy of the Old Testament law. First copy was crushed because Moses threw it on the ground. Didn't drop it. He threw it because they already broke the law as soon as the ink of God's finger was dry. Broke it. God had him take a second copy. God wrote on it with his finger. Try that sometime. English class. Today we're going to use granite as our paper. Go ahead. Use your finger. You're going, Mom, you've lost it. You know? But that's what was in there. Codified evidence of God's decalogue. Second thing was in the Ark of the Covenant was what? Manna. Jar of manna. Keep that jar of manna for a memorial. That's what he said. Why was manna given? Well, because they were hungry. No, it's because they were rebellious. Why was the second copy of the law given? Because they broke the first copy. They were rebellious. They were rebellious, and so the manna was given. What was the third thing in the ark? Aaron's rod that budded. I never knew what that meant. Budded, is that a new tree? No, it means that that event was when people were challenging the authority of Aaron and Moses and, and Aaron being the, the priest and, and serving. And, and so they, they had, God had them take a, a stick, a rod, a walking stick to the tabernacle. And in the morning, whichever rod, a dead stick, actually produced flowers and buds. That's the one God chose. And so not only did Aaron's rod go there, it produced flowers, buds, and fruit. That would be the ultimate expression of a bud and of a flower. And so it was obvious that God had chosen Aaron and, and these other boys should really hush up. 
They took that rod, put it into the ark. Why was it given? Rebellion. Every single thing that was in the center of that box was born out of my, your rebellion. See it? And then over that box was this plate of gold that perfectly covered the box, not over, not too short, not too long, just right with the angelic protectors of the integrity of God standing over it. And instead of it being called a seat of judgment like it should be called, he calls it a seat of mercy because the mercy of God covers all of my sin. And the Old Testament writers say this phrase some 60, excuse me, 120 times in the Old Testament, the mercy of the Lord endures forever. Isn't that precious? Now here Aaron, he's got the incense, he's got the blood. He takes it and he puts it on and before the Ark of the Covenant seven times. Why seven? It's perfect. And after that's done, he says, and I will make atonement for you. Then Aaron, he goes outside of the tent, right? He gets two, he gets two goats. The first, the first goat he takes sacrifices. An interesting thing about sacrificing, the guy who does the knife work is bloodied all the way up to his armpits. It's covered in the blood of another. Very picturesque. Takes that blood in with incense, goes through here, goes to the veil. Same thing, on and before the ark, seven times. God says, and I will bring atonement for your sin. I cover it. Christ, that's him. He serves in dual capacities, multiple capacities. He's Melchizedek, after the order of Melchizedek. The high priest, different order, takes then, like an Aaron situation, the blood, not of a blood of an animal, but his own. He marches in like the high priest of old, goes into the holy of holy of heavens, presents the blood before God, and that place which should have the cherubim reeling their flaming sword in judgment turns it into a place of mercy. And the funny thing is, and the most beautiful thing is, my sin is never seen again. Isn't that great? I get kind of excited about this, so I'm sorry. I'm telling you, his sins... Covered. Now, what do you do with this other goat? Got two goats, right? One was sacrificed. You take this other goat. You say they put their hands on the goat. And they confess the sins of Israel. Then they take that goat. And they take it out. And the scripture says into a desolate place. What does that mean? It means somewhere you can't be found. And they let it go. What's happening? What's happening is... Underneath the, 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 the sacrifice of one animal's life, its blood, God provides atonement and he te- takes the sins confessed on the head of the live goat and sends them away. Do you see it? That's forgiveness. He does it also in the situation with the leper. When the leper's clean and one dove is sacrificed and one bird sacrificed, the blood put on the other, and one dove is gone, deceased, the other dove, they, they let go. Sins are sent away. That's what you do when you forgive your spouse. You send their sins away so they cannot be found again. People do it, illustrate it in many ways. Write all the things you think your spouse has done on a piece of paper. My wife couldn't find enough pieces of paper. And take him into the backyard and dig a hole and put it in the hole and put the dirt on it and we'll say they're forgotten. It's not forgetting. That's a function of aging and and faulty thinking. They are sent away. 
They're not denied. They're not pretended as if they don't exist. They're sent away. That's what forgiveness is. I'm going to ask you the hard question. Is it possible to be forgiven like that and still hold sins against your partner? Is it? The answer is yes. People do it all the time. I sat in a... Oh, it's sad. I sat in a marital dispute. The one... The husband said... I was wrong. I shouldn't have done this. Now, I couldn't see his heart, but I suspected his heart wasn't pure, but he said it anyway. Spouse sat on this side of the table. I will forgive you for that one thing. Not all of it. One. I'm going to ask you something. Is that how God's forgiven you? Out of the 500 gazillion sins... I've taken care of one of them, but you got the other 4,000 or 500 gazillion minus one, right? Is that how God's forgiven you? I don't think so. There's another concept of forgiveness, and it's this verse right here. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And I told this story last time, so I'll, be, I'll keep it brief. The word condemn is a legal term. It's a term that, we, that is like we use the word indictment. You know, in other words, when you've done something wrong, can you imagine? You're a lovely family. I'll, I'll pick on you guys, okay? Can you imagine when, you, when, Esther, you've done something wrong and your dad comes to you and he says, Esther, I have something to indict you about. You go, is that going to be dinner or dessert? Right, what, we don't use that kind of terminology, indictment. That's a legal term. Same thing when, when, when we say, um, if I may, uh, Esther, I'm going to acquit you. You go, you're giving up on me? No, no, no. That means you're free to go, right? So we use those terms in certain settings. They have certain visual and imagery connotations. Well, uh, condemnation is just the same thing. It's used in the courtroom world. And it's, it's when the judge raises the gavel and he says, you are, boom, condemned to this sentence. The judgment has been stated. That's what he says. That's the word. Now, in Christ, there is... No judgment that will be found against you. None. That's what it says in Christ. This context happens to deal with uh, after chapter 7, which is Paul's uh, describing his as well as mine struggle with the law of sin and the law of mind and the law of Christ and all that kind of stuff. And he comes to a point and he says, but there is therefore now no condemnation to in Christ Jesus. And in chapter 8, it talks about the work of the Spirit of God in the soul that actually is the victory in the Christian life. Now, having said that, condemnation. Now, this is the story you probably heard. I got a ticket. In fact, I get a lot of tickets. Not so much anymore because I can't afford them anymore. But <laughs> when I could afford them, I would get tickets. And so this particular ticket happened with me going westbound on 87th Street into the sunset when the officer stopped me and informed me that it was a red light instead of a yellow light, and he was going to issue me a citation. Now, I, I, I consider such officers servants of God, so I thought I should ask the servant of God if he thought that God was a tick, that was a good ticket, and he thought it was a very good ticket. And I said, but you know, I think the light was yellow. Sir, it was red. Uh, officer, are you sure it was, it was red? So one more time, you know, because I'm kind of bonehead, I go, Officer, sir? Yes. You can contest the ticket if you want, but I'm writing you the citation. I said, you mean I could 
fight this in court? Yes, sir, you may. Like, give it your best shot. <laughs> I go, give, give, give me that ticket, give me that ticket. So I go in on the day of court. Now, courtroom in where we're at in Johnson County, Kansas, it looks like a church hall. We got pews, and we got the judge, and he is on this gigantic podium that looks like the podium of all eternity. <laughs> I'm not saying he's sitting up there, and, he, and he's in charge. He is the alpha, alpha dude, alpha judge, okay? And I come in the back. I used to go sit over there. I kind of sit down my own business and kind of looking around, and everybody's crying. Some people are like tie five in and, 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 and while all that's going on there's this poor little doctor he's a doctor I knew who he was he's standing before the judge you know looks, looks like eternity the ju- like the, and this person over here about where you are okay district assistant district attorney she comes calling up and he says and you're on our way sir. and it's like she's throwing lightning bolts and I'm going oh, I'm going to go pay the ticket you know and so I start to get up to leave and they call my name Next case, Steve Price. I go, yes. So I come, I come down the middle. I get before the judge. I'm looking at the judge. And what, you know, you look high. Oh. Yes, your loveliness. Nice tie, you know. Mr. Price. Yes, sir. The officer who wrote you the citation was not notified to be here today, so... Can you wait 15 minutes while we text him and see if he can show up? That's in my favor. What, what do you say? Your Honor, if you don't have your act together, I don't have any time for you either. You don't say that. You plan it and you hush up, right? That's what I did. I plan it and I hush up. And I'm watching the assistant prosecuting attorney crucify several more people. 15 minutes comes by. calls my name up. I go before the judge. I'm looking at the judge. Wise wide open. Mouth like this. I look like an idiot. Go on. He goes... Mr. Price, it doesn't even look at me. It's just cold, sterile, stainless steel. Mr. Price, the officer who issued you the citation cannot be here today, so I'm throwing your ticket out. And bam, like the hammer, like it was a shotgun, smacks the podium. And I go, (gasps) (laughs) one person is listening. (laughs) And I go, oh. And he goes, case closed, just like that, like he was announcing the victor of the chess match, right, or the, the football game. And so, so it goes, case closed, and, I, and literally 10 seconds, I'm... And he goes, uh, Mr. Price, yes, your lovely ship. <laughs> now, this is what he says to me, literally. You... And go now. That's what you say to somebody that doesn't act like they stand, understand English. And what do you do when they just still look dumb? You say it louder. Now! And so I go, don't I uh, need, to, need, to, need to pay something? The exit is that way. I go out the door. I go out to my car. I get in my car. I'm driving down the road. I'm going, Woohoo! I'm challenging every deacon from here on out. Bring him on, baby! It's like the Spirit of God. It goes like this. I go, 
Yes, isn't that great today, Lord? We beat the ticket. <laughs> you think that's all that happened today? <clears throat> what else happened today? My mind just starts to wander. You see, Steve, you were before the Supreme Court Justice of the Universe one time. And your name was called. The officer who wrote the citation, he didn't forget to show up. He was there. That handwriting of document of things that was against you was as long as could be. And it was accurate and it was fully verified and, and, and uh, collaborated. Quite honestly, all the judge had to do was open it and shut it because it was so full of evidence. And you watched him in your little defendant's chair and you watched that gavel go up and it, and it was about to come down like a guillotine on your soul when this man steps into the back door of the courtroom. He walks with a brisk step. He's well-dressed. He's well-packaged. He says with great clarity and tremendous poise, Your Honor, I'm here to represent my client today Stephen Price, I have evidence to submit to the court today that will totally change the court's mind concerning his his guilt. And I would like to present such evidence as an exhibit to the court. May I approach the bench? And I, in my dumbfoundedness, stand over there, sit over there, and watch as this man comes before the judge and begins to undo his tie and undo his shirt and his cufflinks. And I watch as he then turns his back on the judge and he now looks right at me and he lowers the shirt off his back. And as soon as the shirt barely passes the crest of the shoulders, the judge raises that gavel that looks like a guillotine and it slams on the counter or the podium of all eternity and he says, case closed. And then I watch as he turns back towards me and I see the marks that my sin caused on his back. No condemnation. Now that is how you've been forgiven. That's it. No condemnation. I told, I told that to the young people, the young couples that were at the Camp Horizon when Jamel asked me to come. And, and it's still, that, that is so fresh for me. Because there's not a day in my life I don't think God should condemn me. Satan spends his waking hours accusing me night and day. That's the imagery of Revelation. That's what he does. And God just says, you know, his case has been solved a long time ago. And I will not reopen it for you or for anyone else. It's closed. There's no condemnation. Walk away. That's, what, that's what, how we're forgiven, right? Doesn't that just melt you? I got to ask you the hard question. If you've been wronged by somebody in your life, one of the things we want to do is we want to condemn. I do that. I was thinking about this the other day, and some I was some memory came up about a previous insult, and I was I was just thinking all the things I would say and want to communicate and you know really bring this thing to a focal point of righteousness. And the Lord said, you know. You only know a little bit and you think you have the right things to say about it, but I know everything and I could say everything about it and be totally right on target. And you know what I did? What's that, Lord? I took everything that I could rightly say and I put it on my son. And if I can do that for my, to my own son for that person's life, can't you do that too? 
no condemnation. My, my friends, my beloved, if we're going to actually deal with our marriages according to righteousness and according to Christ love the church, then we will need to forgive as Christ forgave the church. There is no other way. It is not humanly possible. It's not. There's too much blood that's been shed. There's too much injury, too much pain, too much insult, too much degrading, indignity. I get it. But I want you to know there is a man who lives inside of you by the, by, the, by the Spirit of God who says you've been forgiven with no condemnation and I know you don't think it's possible and I know you'll never think it's, po- it's going to be a probability in your life, but I can actually do that in you. I can do that in you because that's how you've been done. And I can show you what it means and I can help you do it and I can live it through you. Oh, give me your heart, oh Christian. Give me your heart because this is what marriage is really about. This is declaring the manifold wisdom of God in a terrible situation. This is taking that which is meant for evil and making it for good. Oh Christian, let me do this. Let me transform you from glory to glory as you look at Jesus Christ. And that's what it's about. I wish I could tell you I haven't mastered. I'm in kindergarten every day. Every day. You would think I'd be past that. I even preach about this stuff. Every day is kindergarten for me. I didn't know it. But it turns out I have a great predilection for bitterness. Hebrews 8 says, and we read this this morning, and I will remember... I'll be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. You know what that means? It means this. It means that God has his all-knowing. How do you not forget? How do you forget something if you know everything? Can you imagine that? I'm going to forget you. I'm going to forget you. I don't do that to my kids. We get up on Sunday morning. I say, oh, let's purposely forget Gracie. Janet's going to say, are you, are you nuts? Oh, never mind, you are. We're not going to do that, right? No, we don't, you know, we don't, how does God do this? He knows everything, and he takes everything that he knows, and he, I think he allows, he eclipses his all-knowing by his all-power. And when the two actually cross, my sins are remembered no more. It takes all of his power to disallow all of his omniscience from remembering my sin. And how is it, Christian, that we in the body of Christ and in the, and the families and marriages and all and children and the whole thing, we can remember each other's sins forevermore? Have you ever said, you always do this. You always do that. I remember back. And those words are your incriminating words to you that you are not living according to the forgiveness you've received. Because God says... I will remember your sins and lawless deeds no more. We change the word no to forevermore. That is what's killing us. I ask the question, why is it, Lord, that you have not used the assemblies, our circles, as much as you used to? And I have to confess to you, the answer sometimes returns Because you've forgotten what I've done for you. You've forgotten how you've been forgiven. 
Why would I send baby lambs to your places of rest when you'll teach them how not to be forgiven? I can't do that. I think our biggest problem is we forgot the substance of the truth we profess to know. And it's showing up in our own marriages, in our own families, in our own assemblies. Oh, I can't tell you how I have been on my knees, tears have fallen, praying that God would awaken us to recognizing His truth where the rubber meets the road. That's so important. Okay. Restoration. We cannot just have forgiveness without restoration. We can't say, I forgive you, but you stay over there in the back 40 of the wilderness and I'll stay over here. Right? That's what, that's, that was what the, 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 the young man and the, and the parable of the, of the father, the, the prodigal son, uh, he, he wished his father was dead. He took all the inheritance that he was allotted. He went away. And as he went away, when he came back, he had this thing in his head, this, this little mental image. I'll go to my father. I'll say I've sinned against you and before God. And can I just be one of your hired hands that stays away from you on the back part of the, of, the, of the ranch and you'll never have to see me again, but I'll at least be under the shadow of your generosity. That would be merciful. That would be the version of mercy I could live with. And when he got home to his dad, his dad, and this is the Greek says, it says it in the imperfect tense. It means he never stopped kissing him. He kissed and kissed and kissed and kissed him. And the version of mercy that the son had, which was to stay in the back 40 and be there, but not in the presence of his father, never have dinner with him, never see him on a daily basis. The father threw out immediately and he says, I want you to know something, son. I'm going to have you at my dinner table every night. I'm going to put shoes on your feet because that's what the kids wear in my house. And I'm going to put some clothes on your back that you'll never forget because that's what the children do and sit at my table. And I want you, and I can just see a wick taken off the ring and put, and I want you to make the family decisions of our business on a regular basis. That's my version of mercy. God's version of mercy is similar to that. And it bleeds through the scriptures in certain places like 2 Corinthians talking about the man that was done in incest, incest and was put out of the meeting and now brought back in. So many times we have this story. Somebody was involved in sin. We put them out of the meeting and we never see them again. You know, it's supposed to actually bring them back. They should break. That's, of course, what's supposed to happen. But sometimes when they break, we say, no, thank you. Go away. You've hurt us too much. We trusted you. That happens in marriages. No way, I'm not. I have trusted you. Listen, you ought rather to forgive and comfort and refer. This is that gracious act. They, can't, they don't deserve it. You've got, you got to bring that comfort. Call along one side. You need to ratify, confirm, validate again. This is all the process of restoration. And when one partner has sinned like that, it takes the other partner to act like Christ to them. To act like Christ to the, to the wounded. To be the, the father of the prodigal son. It takes that. And I'm telling you, we just don't do that. Oh, isn't that terrible? When we've received that type of fatherhood and his version of mercy on a regular basis, can we not reciprocate that to the one we took a vow with? We got to. We cannot live this way. This is why we must live. This is the word of God. You know it and I know it.
oh my, it bleeds my heart because I've done this. I've been so, so rude and inconsiderate. He says this in 2 Corinthians 6. Listen, if you don't do this, Satan, Satan has another chance. Satan, you, he had another, he had a previous chance, and that was in the, in the first, the first chance was when he tempted to sin. The second chance is when we gave him over to Satan that he was taught not to, to sin. And now, if you don't bring them back, Satan has a third chance. Don't give him a third chance. It's going to take a reinvestment of trust that was once violated. Somebody took that trust of yours and they just wadded it up and threw it in the trash can. And boy, that, that is what is so painful. Satan will attack and manipulate your emotions and raise them up and raise them down and raise them up so you can never do what the Word of God says to do. Funny thing, our emotions are to obey the Word of God, not the Word of God obey our emotions. Finally, Galatians, let's turn there. I'm sorry, because of time, I I can't turn to all the scriptures, but this is a, a a shorter scripture. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in a trespass, okay, so if a spouse is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of, it's actually meekness. What that means is, is you could have a lot to say and a lot to make them suffer, but you take the strength and the power of your ability to make to say something and make them suffer and you put it under the, the direct uh, authority of the Lord Jesus and let him decide what to do. You, on the other hand, consider yourself in harm's way because you could be tempted too. This is what, I, I quote Mike Atwood on this. Mike, Mike, Mike and I are good friends. He says this, If it wasn't but for the grace of God, I would be exactly where that brother is right now. Now we say that as a cliche, but let me tell you something. That is so true. This is what the scripture is saying. There is only a hairbreadth difference between you and them, and the hairbreadth difference is my grace. That's the difference. You bear one another's burdens. What are you bearing? Oh, I'm fixing their car. No, you're bearing the fact that that person sinned and there was a debt that they cannot pay, and you are going to forgive it and restore them like they don't deserve. That's the real burden. That's the real burden. That's the way of Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is very hard to talk about, isn't it? It's hard for me. It's hard for you. My heart bleeds over it because I've sinned in it in many ways. I've, I've done wrong in it in many things. But it's killing us. It's killing us. It's the giants of our land that live in Hebron and beat their chest like Goliath in the valley and we run and cower in fear. It cannot be overcome by mental discipline or willpower. All these things can't be done by psychological mechanisms. It'll be because God has given you himself and through his exceeding precious promises and vitality and energy of the Spirit of God, you live like the Son of God. That is the way. That's what separates us from everyone else. That's it. God in you. You're not God, but God is in you. We're out of time. We're out of time. I'm sorry. I don't manage my time well. Actually, I never really manage anything well. And so if you'd like the last session, which deals on in-laws. Anybody have any in-laws here? Okay. Okay.
<laughs> if only you knew my in-laws, right? Uh, finances. Anybody have any issues of finances here? Okay, you're all great financiers. Wonderful. And children. Anybody have any questions about children? I was over at, at uh, Mike and Jessica's house last night, wasn't it? Yes. And uh, if I may, sister, I won't embarrass you badly. And we sit down, and she goes, I have some questions. I said, and so I thought we were going to talk about the football score. She goes, how do you do this? with?" Ch-? And we talked about children, right, for a long time. And I said, oh, man, we should have this discussion. But it's like a 10-hour thing. <laughs> so questions about children. Those are three hot topics and a practical note in which really foil us. I'm going to give you three things in closing. That's what they always say. And they go on for two more chapters, right? So the first thing is about in-laws. Number one. The first thing about in-laws is this, is love them. Love them. Honor them. Well, they're not saved. Okay, it doesn't say love them if they're saved. It says love them, honor them. Well, if I let my children go over there, they'll be contaminated. Think about what you're saying. How many hours of a week are they going to spend with the grandparents? Uh, Two. How many hours are in a week? 160-something. What's the percentage of hours they're actually spending with grandparents? Less than 0.05%. Do you really think they're going to be contaminated by 99% of the time with you? Now, I get it. There are some things that are really wrong, and we should be careful. So create other opportunities. Have those of different values come to be with you at your house. Uh, You go with the children when they're there. There's all kinds of created ways, but just love them. They want to love the children, saved or not. Love them. I tell people this, and I really recommend it. As you get older, young people, you're going to do things differently than mom or dad. And you know what? We expect you to do that. Did you know that? Why? You're going to have different parameters than I had. And they're not going to be worse parameters. They're going to be different. Right? You didn't grow up in the Depression. So you, you didn't construct your life with that kind of sort of thing. You grew up in a different area. You're going to have different parameters. You got iPhones, for goodness sake. You talk to somebody six, they go, I what? Yeah. So you're going, to have, you're, you're going to have different parameters. And so it makes no sense to go, Dad, Mom, we really disagree with what you did with us. And, and you know, we're just going to do it differently. What did you really accomplish when you did that? This is what you did. You went to Mom and Dad and you stepped on them. That's all you did. Listen. It's expected to be different. It's supposed to be different. The principles don't change the same. Their practices will probably be altered a little bit. Right? And finally, with in-laws, I want you to remember this. In-laws are people too. And you should honor them. We always made our children behave a certain way to the, to the, to the grandparents. They treated them with respect. We demanded that of them. If they, didn't, if, they didn't, if they were disrespectful, Dad would have something to say about them. We always sought to honor them with our children's lives, with our lives. And so when my mother and father-in-law were ill, they moved in with us. It wasn't a if they should, it's when they should. And when she passed away, it wasn't if he should move out. We said, why don't you stay? My wife's father has been such a blessing to our family. Now, my parents are going. This is my wife. I just love her. She goes, your parents are my parents. I would do anything and everything to serve them as we should. 
in-laws. All right, finances. All right, I'm going to give you a couple of pearls on finances. Janet and I were just married. We had been, I just finished medical school, and in medical school, you, uh, I, I hear residents make a lot today, but back then we made like less than nothing. Came out to about $2.13 per hour. And uh, uh, I'll never forget it because when I finished residency, they are offering jobs and our, our pay scale was going to change like five times. And when you get a five times change in pay scale, you know what you begin to think? God has given me all things richly to enjoy, <laughs> which is a part of a quote from 1 Timothy chapter 6. It actually says, God has given you all things to richly enjoy, so be rich in good works. Hmm? That's what it says. Don't forget that second part. Got everything, so I'm going to go hang gliding. No, you're going to hang yourself, buddy. Don't do that. So we were thinking about buying this this big house. Uh, How many children did we have at that point? Uh, One. Had eight bedrooms. We're looking ahead. So what we did is, is we're, we're wrestling with this, and we went down to see this Christian attorney. There's two Christian attorneys I like in the last 2,000 years. One is in the Bible named Zenus and this guy. And, uh, and I'll never forget, we walk in, he sits us down at his desk, and we tell him our situation and what we're thinking, and he goes, kids, there's no charge for this visit. I want you to know something. And you write this down, young people. Here it is. Don't. Spend it all. That's what he told us. And this is what he said. Because when the Bible says that if somebody comes to your house and they have a need, you should meet the need. Do not let them go without meeting the need. For we are to love in word and deed and not in, word, in, our, in action and not just word only. And if you have spent it all, then you have removed the possibility for you to fulfill and obey the Lord Jesus. And it's all about obeying the Lord Jesus. And he told me his personal testimony. They keep X amount in the house at all times so that if somebody's brought to them by the Lord, they could meet their need if they have that need. He says, I don't go for a tax deduction and I don't go for the glory. I go to obey the Lord Jesus. And the only way I can do this is if I don't spend it all. And my wife and I agree that we will live on this much and we will let the Lord, of course, have not only what we live on, but also what is extra. Hey, that was some of the best advice. You know how long ago? I got that advice some 25 years ago. And for me, it's like I heard it yesterday. Children. All right, here you go on children. I promised Jessica a diagram. I got it, Jessica. You ready? If I find it, I got it. Don't wait. Don't panic. Don't panic. Ah, here it is. Now it's time to panic. Okay. This is a diagram of parenting. Steve, can you really do that? I know it sounds crazy, but hear me out. Remember what I told you, Jessica? Two triangles, right? One there, you can't see it on this screen, and one here, they're in light pink. Why did I choose pink? I don't know, I was tired. <laughs> For you uh, engineer math people, this is the y-axis, this is the x-axis. Don't need to remember that, it's not on the test, but you do need to remember this. This is percentage. This is age. All right. This is the upper triangle. When you're at birth to five years, the majority of your instruction is teaching them to obey. As they get up into these middle years, you have more teaching that teaches them to obey because there is a relationship and not because there's a consequence. 
so that by the time they're 17 into adulthood, they're obeying because there is a relationship with the Lord Jesus and not because they're fearing that their hands are going to be cut off if they disobey. When I understood this, it made the most sense about how to handle my children and what I'm trying to get them to do. Okay? Does that help you? Good. All right, let's close in prayer. No, I'm sorry, do you have any questions? Good, no questions. Let's pray. (laughs) Our Father, thank you again. Oh, man. Thank you for your wisdom. I mean, I I can't imagine what it was like to be around the Savior and and if I was one of those Roman guards or temple guards and say, you know, no man ever spoke like this man. But we, we get a little glimpse when, you, when, when we read your word and you, and you put it together and it just, oh, wow, that's so brilliant. I imagine that would have been like that, what that would have been like for you. Every time you spoke, we'd say, wow, that makes, that's, thank you. We would live off the very precepts that fall from your lips. My God, we need to live off the very precepts that fall from your lips. It's not different. It's the same. Would you do that through to us and through us and in us? Not so we can be really nice people, because we can be like your son. We can bring glory to you. We can honor the one who deserves honor. We can put him in his rightful place. We can hollow his name. We can say, all hail the power of Jesus' name. Let us prostrate and fall. Oh, Lord, that's why. We not only know you should, own, you should own us, we want you to own us. In Jesus' name, amen.